0: And let me ask uh, an approach question to put it in your brain and get you thinking about it as we start to go into the second half of a chunk of scripture in Mark chapter 7 about true cleanliness. And that would be, do you think very often about whose ideology you tend to connect with God and his character? Do you connect somebody else's ideology at times with God and his character? Is that something that we're prone to do? I'm just gonna leave that right set there and let it boil in the back, on the back burner for a little bit. And let's dive in where we left left off last week. We're in a passage where Jesus is confronted by religious leaders. They were the heavy hitters from Jerusalem. Kind of like folks coming from Washington, D.C. to check something out, and you think, ooh, they sent in the bad boys, you know, this is the, the heavy hitters. So they did that, these were the religious leaders, and they start to pick on Jesus' disciples, not on Jesus himself, and they're saying, how come your disciples don't follow the ancient traditions of our rabbis that have been passed along orally from centuries, and how come they're not washing, doing the ceremonial hand washing and other cleansing ceremonies that Our elders have passed along so that's where we started to uh, to hit and we're going to pick it up at verse 15 because it's kind of a pivot verse so we we read that at the the tail end of last week and it becomes the front end of this week mark 7 15 through 23 and it's not from the outside in but from the inside out which we just sang verse 15 it's not what goes into your body that defiles you you're defiled by what comes from your heart And then Jesus went into a house to get away from the crowd and his disciples asked him what he meant by the parable he had just asked or just used. Don't you understand either, he asked, can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. By saying this, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. And in verse 20, then he added, it's what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. Let's pray and ask God to illuminate this for us. Lord, I need help. (laughs) I need your help through the Holy Spirit because this is a tough passage. And I believe that you've shown me a few things this week, but I also know that your Holy Spirit has a way of speaking to individuals, sometimes in the parenthetical notes and things that weren't even in my notes, and sometimes just because you're good at revealing things to us. So however you choose to do that, I pray that you will in this time we spend in your word. Thank you for doing it. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. So, here's the danger that I think Jesus is starting to come up against. He's juxtaposing traditions of men and Scripture. And there's a danger in tradition. Not all traditions are bad. I mentioned that last week. We can learn a lot from some of our traditions. We all have them. But sometimes we don't realize that they have become substitutes for something deeper. I recall Sunday night hymn sings... Now, I grew up in a Baptist church, and I knew which hymnal we used, and I could actually even tell you which numbers went with certain titles because we had Sunday night hymn sings when I was growing up. It started way back in the early 1900s, and then in the mid-1900s after I got born, they were still doing it because that's what we've always done before. And once a month on Sunday night, probably because a lot of ministers were just tired of preparing two messages a Sunday— they decided, uh, let's do that speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's scriptural, right? And we'll let you all choose your favorite hymns. And of course, the kids would all want the stuff that, that used to have barroom tunes, but they were set to Christian music because it was lively. <laughs> stuff like, years I spent in vanity and pride, woo! Caring because when you're young, you're just, you want lively. And we didn't think that, oh, where did that tune come from anyway? Okay, that's a little aside. But anyway, we loved the Sunday night hymn singing, and people would come up with their favorites. Sometimes they would sit quietly for a minute, and somebody would have another one that would speak to something they were going through at the moment, and then it kind of turned into what we might call a Quaker service, where people learned to listen to the Lord and the Spirit and not to just fill the space all the time, and that silence was okay, and that sometimes God would lead somebody to say a quick word of testimony or unpack a little bit of a scripture that had really spoken to them that week, and it turned into being something quite powerful on many occasions. Now, did the Bible actually prescribe this and say you were supposed to admonish one another and encourage and educate one another in psalms and and hymns and spiritual songs once a month on Sunday nights by doing favorite hymns and all that? No, it doesn't get that specific. The principles are there, certainly. And I think that we were probably doing a lot of things that the scripture says we ought to do. But how we did it specifically, methodologically, it became tradition and it became ingrained so that if we were to have missed a Sunday night hymn sing, somebody would have thought, oh man, we're starting to go off the rails. I don't know if we can do that or not. So I think some of the good things that we may have started with can take a left turn if we're not careful, and Jesus is trying to come up against that with the Pharisees and the scribes. How about building styles? Now, because my dad was trying to help start new churches in the Phoenix area in Arizona when I was growing up, the first church that I can really remember what it looked like in my mind was actually in a house. It was a house church. It was right off of West Dunlap Road in western, what's now mid Phoenix, it used to be far north back when I was a kid. And they had bought property, kind of like what we have. We have some property out there, but we haven't built yet. And they hadn't built their building yet. So they were meeting in a house that backed right up to that church property. It would be like going right out here in Green Farms and getting a house right on Amrine so that they could literally zip line into our church property if they chose to do so on a Sunday morning. I think that we should. <laughs> that might encourage getting more people into our midst. our midst. But that's what it was like, and I remember what the house looked like, how they had rearranged the living room, and they had a little lectern. It was a wooden lectern that was not a music stand, and Pastor Keck was preaching. That's where I first gave my heart to Christ, was in a house church. Now, I've heard of another pastor who came out of the uh, Calvary Chapel movement back early when the hippies were starting to really kind of come to Christ in California, and there was Chuck Smith. And... Some of that movement that was taking place. But they decided they were going to intentionally not have churches in a lot of church looking buildings because they thought these people are coming to faith in Christ because they shy away from traditional church buildings. So they would meet a lot of them in warehouses. And the movement just really swept through the country, but somehow people connected the movement with the warehouses. And I heard one guy who came out of that movement to say, somehow or other, we just got the idea that God can't work outside of a warehouse, and so we have to get a warehouse. That's where we're supposed to have church. Now, according to the last 30 years of my life, I would think you have to have folding chairs, and they have to be set up every Sunday morning, or you can't have church. (laughs) And yet, I also have worshiped in some wonderful places, including when Joy and I were in New York and Westchester County for a year, and there was this nice mid-1800s stone cathedral-like building that was beautiful and I felt in God's presence when we were in that place and so I think God has been showing us through the years and I hope that maybe he's showing some others that building styles really don't matter because we're the church when God inhabits our hearts and our spirits and our minds then wherever we are wherever two or three are gathered there he is in the midst of us And he has certainly done that. I've been on a mountaintop having communion with people, and he's been in the midst of us there. I've been on retreats in different gorgeous places where the cathedral is actually a mountain that's so much more vast than anything human beings could build. So it really doesn't matter where we worship, but that we worship. And then clothing styles. I had just mentioned last week that somebody had been kind of offended because they went to a church and they said, you know, we're supposed to dress up and give God our very best, which meant, you're not. And so next time you come back, we hope that you'll, and so they didn't go back to that church, obviously. But I had somebody come up, one of our guys that I have coffee with once in a while, who had a good question. He said, do you think they had a clothing, uh, a mandatory clothing, what what am I trying to say, Uh, a dress code for the Sermon on the Mount? And I thought, well, yeah, you'd have to have hiking boots for sure, (laughs) and maybe a plaid shirt and perhaps a Gore-Tex jacket or something like that. But he, made a re- he raised a good question, and that is that a lot of the places that Jesus is doing some of his best teachings are just out in the countryside. You know, he's out there breaking the bread and multiplying the fish and feeding 5,000 people, and they weren't in suits and ties. So I think that's a really good, good thing. But here's the thing, excuses, excuses. There are a lot of people, like the Pharisees and the scribes, and before I, I'm gonna give you a spoiler alert. I'm going to wind up that the Holy Spirit's going to turn this around, and we're going to point our fingers at ourselves and understand that we can become like those scribes and Pharisees. But it's nice to rag on them before we get to that point. And we can say they used a lot of excuses. So what is Jesus so upset about when he's answering their accusation about his disciples, and this rabbi is allowing them to do that? He's not calling them out for it, which means are you really a trustworthy rabbi or not? I think that's kind of the subtext to these religious leaders. Well, it could be a little bit like a husband who starts adding more hours at work because he's trying so hard to support that wife in her lavish lifestyle that she wants, and he's working 80 hours and then sometimes 90 or 100 hours a week, and he's never home, and when he does get home, he eats for just a couple of minutes, and then he goes into his office and does a little bit more work, and then he finally climbs into bed at 11 o'clock, and then he's up at 5 the next morning, and she finally says, Dear, I love you. I would really like to spend a little time with you. And what he says is, what do you want from me? I'm doing all this for you. And we think, ah, could it be that the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the religious leaders had sort of started doing that for God? They're putting in all the effort. They're doing all the outward observance kind of stuff and said, but God, I'm doing all this for you. I think they can. I think sometimes that gets in the way of the heart, and the heart is all about relationship, and it takes time to develop a relationship. And God wants them to spend time with him so that he can transform them from the inside out. So he doesn't berate them for doing these things. He says they're neglecting the weightier matters. That's what he's really about. And so I think, too, that we can get into critiquing other people's practices and saying those are bad practices when maybe they're not. I I went to a Catholic church not too long ago. There were some beautiful symbols there in some of the things they did that pointed right into a scriptural truth and it was moving to me. So can God work in some of these traditions of men? Yes, he can. If the outward observance points us to the inner reality because this is where it really counts is in the heart. There's this thing called the halo effect. I found out about it, first of all, by riding my motorcycle with the assistant chief of police in the town that I lived at the time. And he would say, you just watch, anybody that I pull over, they will start spewing all the good things that they've done. Oh, I'm such a good driver, and I really have only had a couple of tickets in my life. And they'll just start, they have this need to tell you what a good person they are. And I said, well, I think that works for cops and pastors. Because I went to a funeral visitation several years ago, and this one guy found out that some relative said, oh, and that's uh, Joy's husband, Clark, and he's what does he do? Well, he's a, he's a minister. So for the next 15 minutes, man, he just started unloading all these good things that he had done, you know, I gave my car to this one kid in my family, and I've done this, and I give this many hours in service to whatever, and you know, and good for you. I was grateful to hear that, that's great. I didn't disparage those things. But that halo effect is something, I even looked it up, it's actually a psychological term. And they'll say that it's a way of our trying to present the best part of ourselves to somebody else, hoping that that will attach itself to every part of ourselves, And they will think that we are just all good that way. And I think that maybe there was the halo effect going on with some of these religious leaders as well because they wanted to tout the outward experience. You know, the one who's praying out in public, oh Lord, thank you that I am not like one of those drunks in the gutter. They were really about outward appearance and yet Jesus says, I want to take you back to the original intent of worship in the first place. I want to take you back to the heart. Um, I think a good question to ask from somebody that professes to be a believer might be not, are you a Christian? Because people have a lot of definitions to that, but how is your walk with God? How's your walk with the Lord? Now, I wouldn't say that to a perfect stranger. That might be a little too personal. That might be like somebody walking up to two people who are dating and saying, are you guys gonna get married? That actually happened to join me, I told you about that. Walked into a church and a little girl about six years old, she was quite precocious and she must have seen the way we were looking at each other, you know? And she said, are you guys gonna get married? And that really is an awkward situation. How do you answer that if you've not really been discussing that, you know? So I, think I probably wouldn't ask that question, are you a Christian? I would probably also not ask to a stranger, how's your walk with God? They might think, what in the world are you saying to me right now? But if I got to know somebody well enough that I've had several conversations and they have professed to be a believer in Christ, I think it would be an okay thing to say, So how's your walk with God? Are you feeling like you're being drawn closer and closer to God's heart this week than you were last, or are you feeling like you're facing away from him and you're kind of distancing from him just a bit? I think that's a good introspective question, and a lot of these questions that we pastors love to point our fingers at other people to, I think they're questions that God has that all of us need to point to ourselves, pastors included. Well, Jesus is calling them, meaning these Pharisees, the people who had a lot of experience in walking with God through the children of Israel, back to something original. He's calling them back to two big things, the Word of God and the heart of God. And there are a lot of voices today. There are a lot of podcasts and a lot of preachers and a lot of people who think that they're speaking as reformers and they're trying to reform some things. But if you're not reforming based on the word of God, then you're actually taking them away from God. And so by saying, oh, I just want to take you back to purity of the heart of God, and if you ask them, well, what do you mean by that, then if they can say, well, based on Scripture, what I see Jesus doing, what I think that means is the Holy Spirit invades us, and he's transforming us daily to be more and more like Christ, I think then they're onto something. But if they start pushing the Bible away and out into the margins so that they can reform how they think we ought to be, then they're actually not taking us closer to God. They're taking us farther away from him because those two things always go together, the word of God and the heart of God. Same in 2022, we might think of thinking, oh man, this is just so ancient. You know, Jesus is talking about ancient traditions and that's 2,000 years ago when he's talking about it. So now it's like ancient, ancient traditions. But I still think that this same stuff applies to us in 2022. He's revealing to these folks what he's revealing to us, and that is that knowing Scripture is easier than living Scripture. Ain't that the truth? I'm sharing a story that I shared before with you. I'm doing the shorter version of it because I think it's powerful, and I love the way that this guy shared his life and his story with us. His name was Byron. He was an intellect, and he was so sharp, and he had so many things memorized. He could probably sing, All the lyrics to a whole bunch of Gilbert and Sullivan songs and all these crazy stuff. He's just got this Fibber McGee and Molly closet full of useless information up there. And if you ever opened the door, it would probably come spilling out. And he knew a lot of scripture as well, but he had a problem. His specific problem, we all have problems, his specific problem was addiction to alcohol. And I sat with him on several occasions trying to help walk him through another falling off the wagon experience and then get him back into the right help and get him back on his feet again. And he did, he kept getting back up. But there would be times when he would actually be preaching to me about how to be a better preacher and using lots of scripture, and he was as drunk as a skunk. And I found that at sometimes slightly humorous and at sometimes very sad because I realized that all these truths that were up here had not really made their way into a heart that was spilling out with living those scriptures. He knew them, but he wasn't living them. The good part of this story, the redemptive part, was that he finally really did get the help he needed after a couple of rock-bottom experiences, and he became a wounded healer. He wound up in a great church. They had a Christian version of AA, and he was helping lead a lot of other people into freedom And he could speak as one who knew he was one hungry beggar helping another hungry beggar find food. And he lived his life that way. But he had taken a toll on his body. And the last time we saw him was in a visit he had made on a road trip. He came into our home and visited for a couple of hours. And he looked about 20 years older than his chronological age. And we got word that he had passed away just a few months after that. But the good news is Byron got it. He finally got it, and not just temporarily, but he got where it really counted from the inside out. He got all of Jesus Christ so that he can embrace everything that Jesus has for people who will embrace him, and he was cleansed not because of the outward things he did. It wasn't because of all the AA meetings that he led or attended. It was because Jesus Christ inhabited Byron's heart, and he was changed forever, and so I know we're going to have a reunion. We'll have a lot to talk about when I see him again. It's an amazing story, and I'm so grateful for it. And it shows me that because all of us have something that we're dealing with, Jesus started to make that clear because he gave that whole list, probably because he wanted some of those Pharisees to be thinking, oh, yeah, well, I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with that. Ooh, I have a problem with that one. We need to move from information to transformation. That's what God is about, and he's trying to show us this through Jesus. Mark quotes Jesus' own words about foods. My personal favorite is the one where he says, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. I love to proof text that one. That's a great term. But here's the whole statement. Can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. That's the New Living Translation. I think it's graphic, and I think it's appropriate. That's Mark 7, 18 through 19a. Now, we've talked in other times about some of the crazy dietary laws that some of these folks had passed along, and they kept heaping more laws on top of other laws until some of them are just silly. They were oral traditions that eventually got written down in this thing called the Talmud, and if you read some of them, it's just, it's silly. You think, how can anybody meet all these requirements? And the truth is, they couldn't. And that was kind of the point, is that they'd heaped tradition upon tradition until they had missed the point of trying to do all this stuff because they needed change from the inside out. It's awfully easy for us modern-day religious people to develop a list of shoulds and shouldn'ts, the do's and don'ts. And as long as we're living up to our standards of the do's and don'ts, then if we see somebody who stepped outside of those, then we can point our bony finger and go, aha, aha. Those people are not doing the do's and don'ts. And I think it's good for us to be called back to the heart of the Lord as well and to say, yeah, do you remember what you were like a few years ago? Do you remember what you were like when you first came to me and you surrendered yourself? Do you remember surrender when you felt that weight lifting off of your chest and you thought, God, I'm a nobody, and I need you because there's no way out of this mess except through you. I know you're the only one who can do something in my life. Do you remember that? And so he's calling us back to that heart of God and the remembrance of what it is to truly surrender to him. So, unusual dietary laws. Why were they there in the first place? It's, a lot of uh, skeptics would say, I think it's silly that they're even in the Bible, and, and it really has nothing to do with what's going on in the New Testament. I would say, oh, but I beg to differ. Because, in fact, interestingly, all the animals on that list in the dietary laws have something in common because people would also be forbidden to eat not just ham and bacon like that deli in new york we have no ham Uh, my son asked for ham on a bagel and that's the response the guy gave but it also includes eating squirrels i don't have any trouble with that but rats still don't have any trouble with that cats definitely don't have any trouble with that dogs some countries maybe that's okay, rabbits, I have eaten, good barbecue rabbit, and foxes, oh, and horses. So all those are forbidden in this whole list of stuff. Why in the world would that stuff be in there? Well, interesting, they all have something in common because the meat of all of those animals, if it's undercooked or uncooked, can carry a parasite, Trichinella spiralis, which results in trichinosis. Now, I, being a non-medical guy, just had to consult Google, so I guess you could call me sort of a Google doc, (laughs) <laughs> okay. but th- this is this is kind of gross but I think it's also graphically helpful in showing us that when God gives us some sort of a, a boundary he's doing it because of his love for us he's not just saying oh I'm going to arbitrarily throw this boundary around there because it's going to be fun to watch him try to do this thing Pfft. no there's good reason for that it's reasonable and so these things were reasonable as well because the people in the Old Testament, especially coming out of Egypt, having been in bondage there, they were trying to learn how to be on their own now, and they weren't controlled by other people that were determining everything that they did, including what they ate. Well, let me describe this for you just in case your mind is taking you off into what you think thinking about for lunch today. You will stop thinking about that really quick. <laughs> Trichinosis is the name for a roundworm infection that can be caused by undercooked meat from that list of forbidden animals. And if you were to eat meat containing trichinella larvae, the larvae will make a little fort out of your small intestine for about two weeks, and it camps out there. Now, if they are music, musical little larvae, they might actually even perform an intestinal fort etude. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize for that one. Who writes this stuff? But they quickly grow into adults. They have a very quick uh, adulthood there, two weeks or so. And then they have cute little baby larvae. And you know what it's like when baby, baby larvae start moving around and they stop just at the toddler stage. They want to start running everywhere. Well, where do they go? Well, they hop into the bloodstream because that's how they can get other places. So they get into the bloodstream and they travel all over your body until finally they decided to set up shop in some of your muscle tissue. And as you can imagine from that description, Some of the symptoms are really not pleasant, and I won't read some of them to you right now because then you really won't want to eat lunch afterwards. It's awful. Can you imagine that God, knowing that he's got to get his people all the way from Egypt into the promised land, has got to be kept alive, for one thing, and kept healthy, and they needed to be set apart from other people groups because he had to keep that people group alive long enough to give birth in the lineage all the way into their Messiah, Jesus Christ. God had a grand plan. And even something as simple as a medical term to understand why that was important there, not to mention, and this is probably even more important, he was trying to develop an attitude of obedience in his people, because if you can become obedient in these things that are very obvious to you, there are certain things that as a parent, it's very obvious, you know, when your kid grabs a paperclip and folds it into two pieces and they're looking at that light socket, you're probably gonna say, that's not a good idea, honey. Let's not do that. Don't go there for that. You want to save them. You know, sometimes your job description as a parent, many days when your kids are preschoolers, I just have to keep them alive for one more day. And you do that, but you want them to become used to that because they should grow up knowing that you know more than they do. So if there's something else that they, it's not as obvious, but you say, this is a boundary, and I want you to stay within this boundary because I know it's good for you. I know that there can be some unintended consequences that can be really rough for you. Hopefully they will trust you enough by all these much more applicable and easy to read forbidden things to know that you're not just trying to make their life miserable. You're not just trying to willy-nilly forbid stuff because you're pontificating and it feels good. You're trying to keep them safe and vibrant and living a life that's gonna be fruitful. So. Here's the pizza controversy that the scripture speaks to. If, for some of you who might have found yourself, I've seen these recently on posts, some controversial debates going on about pizza, about whether you should be allowed to put pineapple on pizza or not. Well, if you ever get politically engaged in this horrible discussion that's out there, I just would refer you to Mark 719 b because he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. So, you put that to rest. Controversy settled, boom. All right, and then the spiritual ramification and the theological outcome, and this is where I'm getting with this stuff. I know I'm digressing, and I'm trying to be a little funny, but this is so serious that it's huge. When Jesus said that, there was something that we Gentiles may have missed, and that is that when he proclaimed all these dietary restrictions lifted, the Gentiles were welcomed. That swung the door wide open and all of us, I doubt that there are too many here today who come from that Jewish lineage, Jewish heritage, that means that the door was open for us because we didn't have to suddenly become as the Jews in every area, including the Talmud and some of those dietary restrictive laws. He opened it up and said, yeah, you don't have to jump through those hoops anymore, not to mention the fact that now we know more about food cleanliness and germs and that kind of stuff. But everything God does is for a reason, including opening up his plan to everybody so that every nation and tribe and tongue can hear the gospel and respond to it, and he does that even by this little verse there. Some people can get off track with that and they start getting wrapped up in little details and making them bigger than they ought to be. Some Christians can get high and mighty, high and mighty about using oyster crackers instead of the Baptist bookstore approved communion wafers that come in the little white box. And I had a pastor that was just chewed out royally for that. But Jesus is showing us that it's the yucky stuff in our heart that defiles us, not the outward observance. Let me give you, I'll skip ahead to one uh, illustration because I think it speaks to what he's asking us to do. It's so easy for us to point fingers at other people watched a podcast, or listened to a podcast on our way up yesterday for Joy's mother's 86th birthday party. And it was uh, an interview with a pastor who had gone through a lot of stuff during the last couple of years, and I was resonating with a lot of that. He said, there was a time that I was getting so much pushback on things that I would think, I'm calling people back to the heart of God, I'm calling people back to a balance, I'm calling people back to what I would think is a good, solid, gospel-centric position And yet I'd have people on both sides of different political issues wanting me to preach against those people outside the walls so that we can feel better about ourselves inside these walls. And he said, I couldn't do that because I'm called to preach the truth and the truth is about the gospel. And when we see Jesus opening the door to people like going to the woman at the well who was an outcast in her own people's minds, the well would not be a happy place for her. It would be a place of being an outcast. She'd have to go at a different time of the day because others didn't want to be around her because she was kind of a loose woman. And Jesus, even though he was compassion, compassionate, well, he was the embodiment of compassion, reached out to her, accepted her where she was, and yet he told her the truth at the same time. And we want to be that kind of people. It's the people outside these walls that God has us here for. They are our mission, in fact. And I I remember keeping the eyes on the conductor was important for me, because back when I was in college and in the wind ensemble that I was playing in, we were rehearsing a difficult section, and I know this never happens in your section, Daniela, but it was the clarinet section, they were having a hard time with some quarter-note triplets, and they were trying to play them like eighth-note triplets. They were rushing them, and it's supposed to be, da 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 and they're going, da-da-da-da-da-da. da da no, it's quarter-note triplet. <laughs> so I was in the back row. They're way over there on that side. But I was thinking and pointing my little finger. I'm trying to send these mind thoughts and mind bullets to them to make them, like these parents that are trying to get their kids to kick the ball in soccer, we're trying to make them do something with our brains that they're not doing in their own brains. Until I took my eyes off my own music, and the next thing you know, I come in, one quarter note off, and none of the other trombone players are playing it. I going, bum! <laughs> oh, my. So when I took my eyes off the conductor, and I was thinking more about all those other people and how they were messing up, I messed up. And I think that's kind of why that list was there that Jesus gives. Yeah, are you thinking about these things and this and this and this and this? I'm sure some of those apply to all of us at some point, including even acting foolish, which we can do. We can fail to heed wise counsel, scriptural counsel, and we've become foolish. That was at the end of that whole list. Pride is in that list as well. We dare not become so prideful that we forget what our mission is and that we're all sinners and we exist for those people outside the walls. James gives us a clue about where this temptation comes from and and people ask this saying when does the thought become a sin? Is the thought itself sinful because we have sinful thoughts, but when does it become a sin? Well, I think James 1, 14 and 15 tells us, temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So I think he's showing us that the stuff inside our heart can become flammable if it's shot with the fiery darts of Satan and the thought is there for a moment But when we've got a lot of that living water filled up and sloshing around inside our heart, it extinguishes that thought quickly. And the Holy Spirit can, in a nanosecond, deal with that thought and say, oh, if you follow through on that thought and if you yield your will to that thought, it's not going to end well because this is likely to be the result. And that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. He can extinguish those things quickly as they are mere thoughts before they actually grow into sin. And this is one other thing that I'll do just before we move into a response to the message today. is that learning by experience. I heard another pastor years ago, he talked about the whack quotient. And it made sense to me. You know what it's like when you do something and you repeat that same thing, but each time you do it, it's like you get whacked up the side of the head. And I think, I'm tired of getting whacked up the side of the head. I think I've reached my whack quotient. And so I better stop doing this same behavior over and over again because I don't want that next time. I'm getting, you know, a little gun-shy. And sometimes God starts to reveal things to us as we start getting called back to the heart of God and His Holy Spirit starts to reveal to us which things we need to be dealt with by His Holy Spirit so that we can avoid that whack up the side of the head. And we learn from Jesus that we can obsess over things if we're not careful even religious things, good things, that aren't making us any purer, and which in fact can become cover-ups for some of the filth that still resides in our heart. So, let me give you two wrong questions and one right question, and then we're gonna respond in music, and then we're gonna have some prayer time to respond as well. First wrong question, am I following all the right rules? There's a lot of religions in the world, that's the right question because for them it's all about works. It's performance-based. Am I following all the right rules? Because if I am, I'm good to go and I'm good with God. That's the wrong question. Here's another wrong question. Am I so filled with the Spirit that now there are no rules because I'm free in Christ? And I would say, that's a wrong question too because Paul says, should I sin more so that grace can abound more? Well, No. And here's the right question. Am I abiding in Christ and drawing closer and closer to his heart through his word? Uh, That's the right question. And then he turns it around to us and says, and what about me? Let's pray. Father, Boy, this has been a, a rough one for me to even prepare because you've been turning this around and pointing my finger at myself too. And I pray that I'll come across that way as one hungry beggar who's just holding out food. And I pray that other people will see and resonate with your Holy Spirit so that our spirit vibrates at the same frequency with your spirit so we can say, yes, I get that, I'm picking up on this truth. And if we're doing that, then I pray that you will allow us this time to just sit in this truth for a moment and allow your Holy Spirit to speak to us and to work in our hearts as we sing and as we pray. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.